Hey, podcast fam, Eric here. And if you're an affiliate marketer or looking to monetize your online presence, you need to know about ShareASale.com. ShareASale is not just an affiliate network. It's your gateway to a world of opportunities. With thousands of high-paying affiliate programs across various niches, ShareASale connects you with top brands ready to collaborate with content creators like you. Imagine earning commissions for simply sharing products you love. Whether you're into fashion, tech, or lifestyle, Share a Sale has got a partnership waiting for you. Ready to turn your passion into profits? Head over to milwaukeemafia.com slash share a sale and sign up today. It's free, it's easy, and, it, and it's your ticket to unlocking a new revenue stream for your business. You're listening to Milwaukee Mafia, your podcast dose of Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Milwaukee Mafia Podcast. I'm Eric. I'm Gavin. And Gavin, we're back again. Yep. Where are we headed this time? Where are What's... we headed? We're heading to Milwaukee, of course. Well, well no, okay, but yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's that's totally a Fox City's murder and mayhem comment. Yeah. <laughs> that's okay. No, I mean, sometimes we're not in Milwaukee, but we are in Milwaukee, um, or at least the Milwaukee area. I guess uh, I guess we start out in... in in Tosa. Yeah, and I think the last episode we stepped away from our timeline, so we're back on our timeline, right? We are on our timeline. timeline. Yeah. All right. So where when are we? How's that? That's a better question. This is basically 1964. I'm really trying to get through 1964. <laughs> uh, I, I we can do this for 10 years, you know, but I like to kind of move time forward a little bit, so We'll see what happens. I got a couple 64 stories that I definitely want to do, but okay. So this is a story of John Morn. Really, this this episode took a shift as I was working on it. It started out I was going to write about John Morn, and I actually ended up writing about uh, the FBI and uh, possible changes in their investigation procedures <laughs> so it's, it takes a shift they're they're definitely related so it's not like it's two different things here but okay so i got a, i calling it john morn changes the fbi okay so he's responsible for these changes that we're talk- sort talking sort of about. sort of yes yeah. okay okay so uh john morn born 1932 he's got sort of a, a history of gambling he's picked up at one time uh in Wauwatosa, or Tosa, uh, for playing dice, which not a big deal, whatever, but he's playing dice. He's getting caught another time for gambling. Pretty much his whole life is going to be gambling. He's just a, a nonstop gambler. His official job is he runs an insulation company. At first, it's town and country insulation. Then he sells that off and opens up a second business called the Morn Insulation Company. You know, because you mm. take your own name and put it on the company. Of course. Um, there's one incident I'll throw out here. Just uh, kind of kind of uh, interesting because it coincides with the recent Fox Cities that we recorded. Interesting. And that's at, at one point in time, he's on vacation. John Morn is on vacation in Arizona. And from a payphone, he calls Midge's Tavern in Sheboygan uh, to do some some gambling. And you may recall that Midge's Tavern is the tavern that recently came up in the Milton Lutsky murder in Fox City's Murder and Mayhem. So uh, no connection between those two other than that. 
he called a bar that yeah <laughs> this this guy's gambling with the with the bartender and the bartender also was a witness in the murder of a Fox City's murder man person so totally coincidental overlap there John Morn's hangout is the Clock Bar which is on North 5th in Milwaukee it's a known hangout for gamblers uh, he was seen with Buster Balistrieri there and some other people pretty much the person he's known for associating with the most, especially at the clock bar, is Sidney Brodson. And Sidney Brodson, I know we did a while back. And he is the attorney who really doesn't spend a lot of time being an attorney. He basically just gets uh, dozens of newspapers delivered to his house every day and uses his special technique to place large bets. And he tends to win. I think this might be the guy who said he wins 91% of the time, something like that. I don't remember. That might be a different guy. But either way, he's very good at what he does. He's he's made a small fortune off of gambling successfully. So these two guys are, are really close buddies. And that's kind of what brings the FBI's attention to John Morn is because this guy's always hanging out with Sid Brodson. Now... By December 1963, an informant says, you got to watch out for this John Morn guy, because here's the thing, people don't like taking bets from Sid Brodson. <laughs> Sid Brodson wins too much, and you don't. if you're a bookie, you don't want to take bets from a guy who's always winning. So a lot of times, he's going through John Morn, and he says that John Morn is working as the beard for Brodson, and in this case, beard is like, the guy who's like the front man for the gambling operation does not mean that uh, he is hiding a relationship with somebody. If you're familiar with Beard in that term, um, but uh, in that way. But can you touch on just a little bit? What does this guy do that he supposedly wins 91% of the time? I, we may have done that in a previous episode, but I don't remember. And I'm sure it was quite a while back because he was <laughs> known for it in the 50s. So we've been a while out of that. Yeah, basically, he just gets a large amount of newspapers uh, from all over the country. And like, keep in mind, the 50s and 60s, like there's no Internet. National news is relatively limited. So when he's getting a paper in one city that says this player is potentially going to be injured and not playing, he's getting that information sooner than other people are getting that information mm -hmm. because most people aren't going to hear about that until the game starts. So he's got an edge on knowing who's sitting on the bench that week and things like that. So by in no way or anything is he doing anything shady. He's just no. really got a really good system to get the information needed to make a logical decision on on who's going to win a bet, a game or or whatever it might be that they're betting on a race or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, what he's doing, I mean, it, it's illegal because at this time, you know, you're not supposed to be placing bets. That's not okay. But what he's the way he's doing it isn't shady. He doesn't mm -hmm. really have inside information. He's not cheating. He's just really smart about it. Mm -hmm. So what he's doing, anybody could do. And you're not like, even if you go up to your bookie and you say, this is how I did it, the bookie's not going to say, you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so no, he's, 
What he was doing at the time was a very, very, very complicated system, which today it's probably more built in. Mm-hmm. Because if you're betting in Vegas, I mean, Vegas obviously today is going to take into account, oh, this person's probably on the handicap list or whatever. So this what he's doing at that time, probably you couldn't do today. Well, and what he was doing was wouldn't be as advantageous today because anybody can easily get a hold of all the data that he was probably struggling immensely to get a hold of yeah. to to make these bets. It was the fact that he had the data and nobody else did. Right. But- uh, that's true. And and also, like, the reverse of that is true. Not only does he have this data, the reason it works so well is because the people who assign the odds don't have that data. Okay. So so when they're setting up the point spread or the line or whatever terms you want to use, when they're setting that up, you know, they're not they don't have all that information. So their line or point spread isn't as good as it would be today. Right. Okay. So that's why he's able to see like obvious gaps between what he knows and what they know mm-hmm. and pick and choose accordingly. In February 1964, the FBI went looking for John Morn at the Morn insul- uh, Insulation Company, but they found a note on the door directing them to the Aceta Cabinet Company around the corner. They went over there and an employee there said that Morn had left for Florida and any messages would be passed on to him. The one time they try to interview him, he's gone. <laughs> okay, so up to this point, like I, I've skimmed over. If people want to read it online, I go into much more detail about John Warren's background. But what I really want to get to is how he is going to change the FBI a little bit here. The Milwaukee FBI is looking into John Warren. They're looking into various other gamblers, and. It's starting to become apparent that they're spending a lot of time doing this, and it's not terribly fruitful. Ever since the new gambling laws were passed in the early 1960s, agents have been spending more and more time looking into gamblers, but not getting great results. Mm -hmm. So, July 20th, 1964. The Los Angeles FBI office proposes simplifying the interstate gambling operation investigations by creating a control file. And a control file is kind of like a big dumping file where you just throw everything in it. Mm -hmm. They suggested calling it PROGAM, short for Professional Gambler, modeling it off of a previous dumping file called VEGMON, short for (laughs) Vegas Money, which looked into Vegas skimming operations. Los Angeles believed that local bookmakers generally did not violate interstate laws, and when they received bets from out of state, they were often unaware that they were receiving them from out of state, because they don't know where the phone calls are coming from. Mm -hmm. Los Angeles believed the gambling to be a nationwide coordinated effort with gamblers and bookies playing the odds in their favor. If the odds were better in Los Angeles than Boston, for example, a Boston gambler would call in a bet to Los Angeles. And that bookie that they're calling might not even know it's a long-distance call. The bookie is not knowledgeable of the bigger network. Likewise, local police are often not knowledgeable of a bigger network beyond their city. Los Angeles believed the passage of federal gambling laws divided up the centers of gambling. They pointed out to, to people such as horse handicapper Al Monis 
and a clearinghouse that operated in Cincinnati and Newport, Kentucky from 1930 to 1959. So what they're saying here is that this Al guy and other gamblers or basically bookies, they're not really gamblers, they're bookies. Sometimes I use the terms interchangeably. I should be more careful about that. But they've got this place sort of on the edge between Kentucky and Ohio where people nationwide are calling in their bets. Mm-hmm. After federal gambling laws went into place, this operation shut down, and it's now more divided up. Like, there's not just okay. one nationwide number you call. There's different people in different regions. Right. Because this put them at major risk being, like, in one centralized location but taking calls from 50 states. <laughs> Following the congressional investigations and new laws passed, um, now the major bookies were in Boston – Miami, Chicago, uh, uh, Milwaukee included, and um, in other places. They said the biggest, probably most famous name at this time was Frank Rosenthal in Chicago. And Frank Rosenthal will come up much later in our timeline because he's kind of a connection between Milwaukee and Las Vegas. But, um, but at this point, Rosenthal was at a low point in his career because he had recently been caught fixing a college basketball game. <laughs> and that's that's a no-no. <laughs> and this is a this is a whole side thing. I'm not going to go into it, but but college basketball games seem to be like the number one fixed game. Yeah. Really? Yeah. More than any more than baseball, more than more than football, more than even horse racing, like college basketball seems to be the one where <laughs> I wonder why that would be, but <clears throat> well, it's it's easy to do because you go up to like a college player who's like the star on the team, right? They're not getting paid, mm-hmm. and you say, "I'm going to give you three thousand dollars," and you don't have to lose. But the point spread is this: so if you guys are winning and you just miss a shot or two. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. Okay. So the the players getting paid, they still win the game, which is all they care about. But from the gambler's point of view, they didn't win by enough. So it switches the odds, and then you win a game that you didn't expect to win normally. Yeah, and I wonder if that's, you know, because in a lot of other sports, it's a lot harder for one person to be able to control that. Yeah. But I think with basketball, if you're the star of the team, you're going to score the majority of the points, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So it's probably much easier for them to do it than per se like football. Yeah. It's definitely – it's it's been an ongoing problem. I don't think it's what it used to be. I don't think it's like a big deal anymore. But it, it's happened many times. Mm-hmm. FBI headquarters responded to Los Angeles' gambling investigation proposal and said – it was terrible. Your idea is, is bad. Your ideas have considerable merit. They're appreciated. But your method proposed would involve an increase of paperwork and the filing of additional reports. The administrative burden may be too great in the meantime. So headquarters gave a list of men who should be investigated more intensely. Frank Rosenthal made that list. Uh, so what they're saying is, like, by contra- by creating a control file, all you're doing is making, like, more paperwork. Report. You've created another file, more time that people in the office have to copy it. Because here, like, they've got secretaries and stenographers who are copying reports by hand a lot of the time. 
So like when you take information out of one report and put it into another report, it's not like cutting and pasting it. You got to have some poor lady who's sitting there and has to retype it the whole time. <laughs> so now, what was the what's the advantage of having the control file? Just having everything in one place. So if if Milwaukee is looking into ten gamblers, let's say those they'll keep those individual files, but then they'll also dump it into one big file. So you can see a bigger picture of what's going on. So basically, if if you're in Milwaukee and a new gambler shows up, it just makes it infinitely easier to look up that person's name to see maybe he was down in Kansas City or in Chicago doing the same thing. That's a possibility, really? yeah. Okay, I see. Yeah. I mean, and and they do use control files sometimes. There's like a a file that I have that's like the Hurley control file where like all prostitution activities in Hurley just go into one file. And they all have their individual files as well, but that's just to kind of keep track of the fact that, you know, in case there's overlap, the names jump out. Mm -hmm. Here's where Milwaukee comes in. After the FBI headquarters shuts down Los Angeles, a memo from Milwaukee to headquarters was very blunt about their own problems that they've been having with investigating gambling. They specifically called out John Morn as an example. They said, here's what's going on in Milwaukee. Our office has lost three agents who previously worked on top hoodlum cases and gambling cases. This puts an increased workload on one specific agent who's now taking these things, Agent Alexander Legrand. Who I'd like to do a whole episode just on Legrand at some point. Legrand already had 11 gambling cases and 14 anti-racketeering cases. In addition... Legrand had assisted on a kidnapping case, multiple bank robberies, and was supposed to be devoting half his time to developing informants. In short, the transfer of those agents weakened the ability to investigate gambling and likely reduced the usefulness of informants that Legrand was working on because he didn't have time to meet with them. Legrand said that despite this, Morn was still worth investigating because in conjunction with Sid Brodson, he was betting cross-country meaning the FBI could discover numerous interstate violations of gambling laws by tracing the calls of Morn, but it just wasn't it wasn't feasible based on the agents and time that they had available. Mm -hmm. Then comes something called the Criminal Intelligence Digest, which is apparently like a newsletter they get at the FBI or used to get. And it had an article by Agent Frank Townsend titled, the analysis of a sports book. The agents in the FBI office uh, apparently really liked this article, and they made special note of it about how helpful it would be to help them uh, pursue Brodson and Morn in future investigations. So whatever is in this article, which I requested, so hopefully I get a copy of it, mm -hmm. this analysis of a sports book really, like, really opened some eyes, I guess. Another month passes, and the FBI closes the John Morn investigation because of lack of agents and lack of time. They converge it with the Sid Brodson file. They say, if Morn comes up, you know, in Sid Brodson, great, throw it in the Brodson file, but we don't have time for, for Morn to have his own file. They said pretty much anything that he's doing that's going to be under our, you know, what we care about. He's going to do through Brodson anyway, so whatever. And they pointed again to this article 
as their guide for how they were going to go forward. And then they laid out a thorough plan of, of moving ahead on, on these investigations. This is where Milwaukee really takes the lead on kind of changing the way gambling is looked into. Okay. Going off of how like Los Angeles pitches as they get shot down. Now they're going to, Milwaukee's going to come back. Milwaukee said there was a tendency to open files on local bookies, and this should be decreased in the future. A preliminary check to see if they had an interstate component was probably worthwhile, but often they were strictly local in nature. So basically, if in the first couple of days you don't see something interstate, don't bother. Mm-hmm. This took up valuable time and resources and did not result in potential for prosecution. Uh, although not explicitly stated in the in the memo, uh, the FBI placed really high importance in closing cases for statistics. They just love statistics there. So um, when they when they open a case but they don't close it, it it looks bad on their on their mm. forms. The national layoff centers that supply gambling lines or point spreads are few in number and should be the priority, as taking them down would cripple syndicate gambling in a way that attacking bookies never could. Milwaukee was concerned that the biggest people weren't getting properly investigated because things were fragmented. Many case files were opened on many individuals passing along gambling information, but there was no clearinghouse for this information. Although a dozen gamblers could be traced back to one source, the information is in a dozen files, often in different states. If information in one office could aid investigation in another, they may never know. They pointed out the normal way that the FBI has dealt with this is a control file. Now, we know that the control file has already been shot down <laughs> by headquarters. They said this was proposed by Los Angeles and you guys didn't like it. We agree. A control file is a terrible idea. We think it's a bad idea because the file would be too massive and the details would get buried anyway. If we had one nationwide file where every gambling case was just being dumped in, no one's got time for that. (laughs) Furthermore, some offices do not have agents with gambling expertise to analyze such a file. Milwaukee's uh, chief agent recommended creating a monthly gambling intelligence digest that could be compiled by headquarters or one of the major offices. And a major office here is like New York or Chicago, some place that has just a ridiculous amount of agents. Mm -hmm. Something more than a newsletter that gave information on patterns to look for. This digest could focus on clarity and essential information. The digest would be broken down into different headings of major bookmakers with their phone numbers and addresses, as well as for BR men and layoff operations. I do not know what a BR man is. Like, this this threw me, because normally BR in FBI files stands for bank robbery. So I don't know oh, what I BR know. means. I'm trying to think of anything that would make sense, and I can't think of anything. So. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't know what that means in this case, because it, it's not bank robbery. But Each office would submit a monthly report, and the digest would take these reports and combine them to create a single digest. Lastly, it was suggested to keep an administrative page similar to other files so that confidential information could be separated from the body of the digest. Okay, so a couple things here. One, they're throwing out the control file idea. One, because it's, it's massive. It would be massively bulky. 
two, probably because headquarters already shot it down. Mm-hmm. So proposing it after headquarters shoots it down is not a good idea. Uh, so what they're doing is kind of a modified thing here where they're saying each month we submit information that we think is key. The people who are working with gambling files submit mm-hmm. the absolute key summaries. They go to one agent working at one office and their job is to take it, put it all together into a monthly file, and that monthly file gets shot out to everybody. Mm-hmm. So instead of this huge dumping ground, it's like a thing that's a file that's updated once a month and sent out to everybody where everything is kind of laid out in a readable format. And it's also the the agents specifically looking at the files are like the creators of the files are saying, well, this probably isn't relevant. So it's just not everything dumped into right you know like if there's some very specific wisconsin things they'll probably just exclude all that from this digest because somebody in new york doesn't care yeah and it's, lice. and it's helpful because what happens here is like when a gambler a bookie whatever terms you know when they're making phone calls generally the fbi offices will like run a, a phone check They'll pull like a month's worth of phone records and see who they called. And it's not as simple as just doing that and looking at the number with a list of names. You then have to check with the phone company to see who owns each phone number. Mm -hmm. So here, like the idea is if there's a monthly printout of the major bookies in the country and their phone numbers, it's like a shortcut. When you see a gambler calling a number out of state, does it appear on this monthly digest? Yeah. So it saves a lot of legwork of having to go to the phone company all the time. Mm-hmm. So pretty clever idea there. I also, I, I think it's interesting here that they say that the confidential information would stay on the administrative page. This is something that the FBI did for a long time. I don't know if they still do, but they did it for a long time where they'd keep a separate administrative page. And it, it, I think it's called that like as a misleading thing. <laughs> Because that's where they would throw, like, informant information or other things that they didn't want anybody ever to see. Mm-hmm. And it's really funny. Because, like, if another agency requests an FBI file, you know, well, because they're working on a similar investigation, they'll pass along the file. But they won't pass along the administrative <laughs> page. They'll be like, oh, that's an internal administration page. It doesn't matter. And they, so they won't pass that along. And it keeps the their really key... Secret stuff to themselves. It's clever, but I always thought it was funny that they call it the administrative page. Like that doesn't seem like a a thing. Well, they have to give it give it a name though. Where if you're saying, well, well, that's just the administrative page. Page. Everybody just thinks, oh, administrative, no big deal. Who cares? Yeah. yeah but but they probably put whatever <laughs> some pretty important stuff on there. Yeah, and then whenever they did stuff that was probably not legal or was, yeah. was really gray area. They didn't even put it on the administrative page. They put it in a separate thing called June mail. Like I still to this day <laughs> have no idea what June mail means, but that's what the name of that file is called. Wouldn't you love to get a hold of the June mail file? Just oh, you see- can see them now. Oh, can you? Yeah, like- yeah. They get released when you request a file that's administrative and June mail is totally requestable, but it's, it is funny. Because like they're on a separate thing specifically for that purpose. Mm. All right. So they, they've made this modified proposal. The Dallas FBI office responds to Milwaukee's gambling digest suggestion and wholeheartedly endorses it. 
They said that issue one should have the photos of all the major bookmakers and each issue should have a column of phone numbers sorted by city with each office being responsible for adding or removing from that list. This would eliminate duplication and the need to repeatedly consult the phone company, as I said. Mm -hmm. They further suggested a section on gambling terminology for agents that were new to gambling or to keep up on changing words in, in the world of gambling. I think that was a great idea there. Yeah. Good job, Dallas. Because, yeah, like, I'm fairly familiar with gambling terms at this point, just from reading all the files, but I don't know all the terms, and sometimes I use terms slightly incorrectly. So I think that that is great to have sort of a shorthand glossary of, you know, when you hear these people saying these things, what do they what do they mean? Well, and, and not only that, but isn't this kind of? I mean, I guess it's not the infancy of gambling because gambling has existed forever. It's not the infancy. It's it's this is only about two years after the FBI started looking into it, so it's new to them. Like prior to this, you might have an FBI agent who's worked for twenty years. And up until the last year, he's never seen a gambler in his life because mm-hmm. that's not what they did. But I would also imagine that this is kind of the an early age of like interstate gambling. Like that probably didn't heavily exist prior to this. Yes and no. I mean, Maybe. some somewhat over the phones, and then in the earlier years, it was done by telegraph. Um, so. But I just imagine that like this is where it's really picking up, and that's why they're going after it, and. You know, when something's new like that, they're constantly changing the way they yeah. do things and changing the dia- the verb, the terms they use and stuff like that because it's just it's just a growing industry, I guess. Yeah. So, and I don't, and I don't know because the the problem I run into is like once the FBI opens a file on something, there's a disproportionate amount of information on that thing because now they're looking into it. So I can't tell you that gambling was bigger in the 60s than it was in the 50s. It could be. But it's hard to say because I've got, you know, 10 times the information in the 60s than I would have for the 50s. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to gauge it when the when the amount of information is so lopsided. So the gambling terminology. Um, Dallas was of the opinion that gambling was the major source of income for organized crime and that any simplification of investigations would be a smart move. And that's always a running theme from at least this point forward, if not earlier, that gambling is the major funder of organized crime or the backbone of organized crime. That's something that you'll hear the FBI say again and again. In addition to the investigations themselves, a good deal of time is spent by stenographers writing each report and having to make multiple copies of the same information over and over again. Freeing up their time would be advantageous because they could work on other things and get those reports written and filed faster. So so even completely non-gambling related investigations would be better if they if you we had a stenographer that wasn't always tied up with this stuff. <laughs> Los Angeles then responds to the Milwaukee gambling proposal. The tone of their memo, and this might be me reading into it, but the tone of their memo strongly suggests that they were offended that Milwaukee's proposal was so well received following their own proposal being rejected. Again, I could I could be reading that wrong. They did concede that a majority or they did sorry. 
They did concede that a monthly gambling digest was a good idea. They did concede that Sidney Brodson deserved to be on the list of covered individuals. He had not made the list previously released by headquarters as people to focus on, but they said Brodson should probably be on that list. Los Angeles suggested the best place to compile such a digest would be headquarters, and because of the sheer magnitude of information coming in each month, it might be best to limit the tips passed on from those received only by the top informants in the gambling field instead of informants in general. So they had some minor tweaks, but they basically accepted it. But yeah, the the memo is written weird, where they're like, hey, you're just like restating the same things we said, but you changed it so the director (laughs) likes your idea better. And... I don't know. And it's hard It's hard to read into things when they're written, like the dry mm-hmm. language that you write in a form like that. But that's how I read it. It was Los Angeles. I'm like, what the crap? <laughs> like, that was our idea. You just made it better. The Boston office of the FBI felt the Milwaukee Digest plan had merit, unlike the multi-page responses of other offices. And some of these were, went on for like seven or eight pages, like outlining how they felt about it. Boston had a concise one-page response saying their only suggestion was maybe we only need to make the semi-annual rather than monthly. <laughs> that was their, that was their <laughs> only feedback. they're just like, let's just make this a little bit less work. <laughs> yeah. So they're going forward on this. So gambling is now going to be really scaled back on how it's investigated. It's going to focus more on specific individuals. So right out of the gate, like the first two years, they're like, oh, Bookie, open a file. Bookie, open a file. And it's a, it's a huge waste of time because most of these guys are just, you know, if someone's a bookie at a bar, like, that might violate local gambling laws. But it's not the FBI's problem. If people are coming in, getting a mm-hmm. beer and placing a bet, that's not an FBI problem. So this is kind of smoothing that out. So just kind of getting back to John Moore now, uh, this is just a super summary of the rest of John Moore, because John Moore is not really going to come back up much in our future episodes. February 1965, an informant told the FBI that John Moore had made $18,000 as a bookie in just the last week. A month later, when asked about gambling, another informant said the biggest gambler that he saw downtown was John Moore, who regularly received envelopes with with bets over the counter at the clock bar. So so John Morin got kind of pushed out as a very minor gambler. Now he starts coming back because now he's like on the <laughs> other end. And they're like, oh crap, but John Morin's back. Um, they're, they're kind of, he continues to hang out with Sidney Brodson. He gets arrested at one point at a place called the Club Las Vegas after getting into a fight with another man. He opens up a bar in 1968 called The Rut, which is in West Allis. Uh, the place burns down, which kills two people who lived upstairs. So that's not that great. Uh, arson was suspected. Interestingly, uh, when he was filing the business papers to create the rut and all the legal stuff attached to that, um, his attorney of record was was Joe Balistrieri. Um Doesn't necessarily mean anything because, of course, you know, if an attorney works with the mob, it's going to take on other clients right, as right. well. Yeah. But I think it was interesting that he had Joe Balistrieri as his attorney when, like, his best friend is Sid Brodson, who's an attorney. <laughs> so it's like, it's not like he didn't have another option. Mm-hmm. Uh, on another occasion, 
a man named Wilbur McCauley, this is ahead in 1968, was found murdered in a Milwaukee hotel. Um, he had been a business partner of John Morn, and that'll we'll do a separate story on that. Morn was married in 1970, so he's actually getting on in years. He doesn't he waits until he's like 40 to get married. Um, he would have a handful of children over the next decade. I won't name who his wife or children are for privacy reasons because they are still alive. Mm-hmm. He was involved in a big gambling bust in 1972 that we'll probably cover elsewhere because it was a big uh, Super Bowl event, big Super Bowl gambling bust. <laughs> okay. And then by 1978, Morn made Florida his permanent home, owned a hotel there that specialized in psychic phenomena and spirits. Nice. Uh, following his passing in 2011, his wife continued to operate the hotel, and I believe that she still does as of this moment. So I'm just wanted to kind of breeze through that just to get back to the John Morn stuff. But but yeah, like when I was putting this episode together, I started out and I was like, oh, I'll just do a whole like biography of John Morn. But it ended up taking this sidetrack where like the FBI office is like, hey, this investigation, we're spending a lot of time following this guy around. All we're doing is seeing him hang out at bars. He's not doing any violations. And then Los Angeles proposes this idea that get shot down. Milwaukee jumps on that mm-hmm. to modify the way that the FBI is going to look into gambling in the future. So that ended up being more interesting to me than just talking about John I think Warren. that's really interesting because I, f- I find it really funny that that the FBI would even take something Milwaukee. Because I would assume even at this time, Milwaukee's probably a very small player in the FBI It's a minor circle. office for yeah. sure, yeah. And the fact that they took their, their ideas seriously just kind of shocks me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so yeah, I started off, I'm like, oh, this is – we're doing John Moore, and I'll just do a whole rundown. But yeah, then I get sidetracked, and I'm like, okay, this is actually, I think, going to be a better story. But I'll just kind of explain who John Morn is about why he becomes, like, the reason the FBI, the Milwaukee FBI office, like, turns on it. And then because of the John Morn episode, I throw a bunch of random <laughs> stuff at the end. But the big things we'll come back to. Because, yeah, there is there is a murder. So that, you know, we got to cover a murder. Mm-hmm. And there's the big Super Bowl gambling bust. Probably cover that. I don't want to do too many stories on gambling, even even though it's like the major part of organized crime. Like it gets repetitive after a while. Mm-hmm. Like, like oh, gambling, murder never gets old. So did John Morn ever? Did they ever? Did he ever get the reputation of having uh, of people didn't want to even let him bet anymore because he was winning so much because he had this Cindy. What is it, Sidney Bronstein? Is yeah, S- Sidney Bronson, yeah. Bronson? Yeah. Sitting in the background telling him who to do these bets for? Did he get that reputation among the gambling community, or did he manage to kind of lay low of that? Well, it seems like what happened is at some point he switched from being primarily a gambler to primarily a bookie. bookie. So he went from placing bets to taking bets. And Sid Bronson was never a bookie. He mm-hmm. was always a gambler. And... But that's sort of the thing. Like, if if Brodson had been a bookie, he might have even done better than if he had been a gambler. Yeah, because, because he, could, he could have made a better point spread than anybody else had done. Mm-hmm. Because, in theory, if done correctly, the house is supposed to win <laughs> every time. Yeah, yeah. So if he could bet and win ninety one percent of the time, for him to be a bookie, yeah, and maybe that's what exactly what. You know, maybe 
maybe this guy was in the background when he switched when yeah switched over to being a bookie and he was running the lines for him. And I stuff definitely like think that. there's some connection for sure, but. And you also have to think because one of the big things the FBI was going after is because most of these people were getting the spread mm-hmm. from someplace out of state, right? Yeah, definitely the big places seem to be Chicago and Boston. So, I mean, and the minute you do that, correct, you're breaking the law. Yeah. Because it's considered crossing state lines. Right. So, right. Well, which you, I guess it's no matter what, gambling is illegal, right? But you're right. breaking the federal law, which makes the FBI become part of it right yeah so if you're in milwaukee and you call up chicago boston or wherever you would be violating the violation itwi (laughs) which is the interstate transportation of wagering information yeah so So, yes so just having him in the background being that he was from milwaukee and he could be creating these spreads he's that much more protected correct in a way because now if, he, if he's taking it primarily from other people in the Milwaukee like area, area, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which I would imagine most bookies are. Pro- bookies are primarily local. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's once you get up into those spreads and things like that, that's where it's more interstate and stuff like that. Yeah, at that point, they that's more called like odds makers. And those are the people that kind of set the trends of what a spread is going to be. And they're not this like now today... I'm assuming that whatever Vegas sets as the odds is pretty similar across the country for what odds are. But at this point in time, it it did vary a great deal. What the odds were set in Chicago were not what the odds were set in Boston. They could be, but they were individually calculated. So right. you could get a very big difference. And this is this is how Sid Rodson did so well, is because if he knew that one of the two was offering a better spread for who he suspected was going to win, that's who he's going to bet through. Mm-hmm. So it's like, he's like, yeah, I could probably win in Chicago, make a hundred bucks, but I could place the exact same bet in Boston and make 500 bucks. Mm-hmm. So him being aware not only of his inside, well, not inside information, but it's smart information. Nation. Yeah. And then also knowing the different spreads nationwide, that's how he was able to do so well. And yeah, so a lot of this, a lot of this kind of disappears as things nationwide kind of become homogenized, sort of like yeah. everybody's doing the same thing. Once everybody has the same data, a yeah. lot of those gaps are closed and there's not nearly the opportunity that there was. Like if you're out there thinking right now, hey man, I'm gonna go try this on for myself, well it's not gonna work very well today because no. the data freely flows nationwide to everybody. So Yeah. And and you gotta keep in mind like even at this point in time, like you couldn't call up Vegas and ask what the odds were because they won't tell you. If you're in Vegas, they'll tell you. But they're fully aware that in Nevada, gambling is legal. Outside Mm -hmm. Nevada, gambling is not legal. So they're not going to give you that information over the phone Mm -hmm. because they know that they're potentially opening themselves up to a federal crime. Whereas, you know, in Vegas, they can pass that information around all day. Now, in today's world, I mean, you post it online, and I, I suppose if somebody really wanted to be technical, you could say it's an interstate thing because anybody in any state could look at it, but it's not. I mean, that would never happen. So yeah, based on what you just said, does that mean that these laws still exist for the interstate 
gambling thing? They do, but I highly doubt they're enforced, enforced much at all. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. But they do to some extent because, I mean, that's how people still get busted for, like, online poker and stuff like, like that. that. Like, so gambling laws still exist. They're just not – they're not a focus like they used to be. I always – you know, I consider gambling – we've said this probably every time we had a gambling episode. I consider gambling kind of a joke now because in the state of Wisconsin and I'm sure pretty much everywhere, gambling laws are not enforced. Mm-hmm. Technically, if you go to a bar and they have a Packer pool, that is not legal. That, there's there's <laughs> a law in the books that says you can't do that. But you can go to just about any bar and play a Packer pool. Mm-hmm. Officially on the books, you cannot have a video poker machine in your bar. That is not legal. But you can go to almost every bar in the state of Wisconsin <laughs> and they've got video poker. Mm-hmm. And that's because there's a loophole in like the uh, the revenue laws that say, you know, as long as you keep under a certain number of machines, it's not worth us doing it so you can have them. Mm-hmm. So, like, the laws still exist. They just choose not to enforce them. Are we going to get to a point where, where we kind of learned what pushed us to stop giving a shit <laughs> for a lack of better way of putting it? I don't know. That's a, I actually don't know the answer to that. You don't know, like, when this the tides turn and – I mean – I think a, probably a huge part of it is is that nowadays, I mean, who's running the gambling rings? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's no longer the mafia running it. So, so yeah. does nobody care because there's not a criminal underlying element that we all know that's pushing so, these things out? This yeah, is, this is pure speculation on my part, but so. Mob run gambling was still like a major focus of investigation and criminal enforcement up through the early 1980s. I would suspect, and this is without me having really looked into it, this is again pure speculation. I would suspect a major turning point was probably around 1989. And the reason I pinpoint 1989 is that was the year that. Indian nations were allowed to have their own casinos. Okay, okay. And my guess is once almost every state, I guess I don't know every state. I don't know how, how reservations are spread out throughout the nation. But definitely here in Wisconsin, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, once once you all, all you had to do was drive a half hour, 45 minutes, and you could get to a legal casino, people's views of casinos changed quite a bit and gambling changed quite a bit and that also probably did a chokehold on organized crime getting into this industry because it probably wasn't nearly as fruitful for them as it was when nobody had those you know what i mean and they and they tried i mean you can find incidences of of them getting trying to get into the i'm trying to use like the proper term i'm going to keep saying indian gambling but i feel like that's not the right way to say it Native American gambling. Native American gambling, gambling. indigenous oh. gambling. I don't know what the proper term is here, but but I feel like, you know, I mean, the mob tried to get into that with limited success. They tried really hard to get into dog racing, greyhound dog racing, and they did a pretty good job of that, even in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. But greyhound racing didn't end up being like the huge success that they thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, as as we here know very well, like Greyhound tracks uh, collapsed pretty quickly, but for a brief moment they were they were a big deal. Mm-hmm. 
That's so. interesting. The whole gambling thing is is really fascinating to me because it's just how something goes from being such a stigma mm-hmm. to being just like we just don't care about it. Like it, to be able to find that that transition where we stop it stops being a stigma and turns into something that we just accept as a daily thing. Yeah. It's just weird to me. I'll probably have a better answer like as a timeline moves forward and I like actively look into things. But as of what I know today, that's my speculation. And I think that's probably a very reasonable one is is that I didn't realize, to be honest with you, I didn't realize it took that long before the the Native American reservations could have casinos. That's that's because you and I are so young. Yeah, they were there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We are are such such young people (laughs) that that we never lived in a time where they didn't have it. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, no, that's uh, um, and somebody somebody can shoot an email and correct me, but I'm pretty sure it was '89 when that finally went went through. through. Interesting. All right. So, do you got anything else for this one, or do you want to drop a little sneak peek into the next episode if you know what it is? I'm not 100% sure what's next. I can tell you that if not next, coming up soon, um, we're going to talk about attorney Dominic Frenzy running for governor. Nice. He did that in 1964. (laughs) Yeah, beyond that, I'm not sure. There's a couple things I was kind of like working on seeing, but that one I know will probably be coming up quick. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And we may have a couple more smaller stories in between there depending on what's in the timeline. So, yeah. Um, as always, we do want to thank everybody for their continued support of this podcast. You can uh, find our Patreon, patreon.com slash Milwaukee Mafia, or just jump over to MilwaukeeMafia.com. And Gavin, where can people reach out to you at? Uh, definitely the website's a great way to start. I try to post all show notes on there, which go into much more detail than I do. Uh, reading them here, I try to skim them. So people don't fall asleep. But if you don't want to fall asleep, uh, or you do want to fall asleep, I guess, <laughs> you can go to the website and read the full show notes. Um, if you want to email me directly, it's milwaukeemafia at gmail.com. All right. And with that, we'll wrap this episode up. We'll be back next week with Patreon and two weeks with a regular episode. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in to the Milwaukee Mafia podcast. Join us next time for another look back at Wisconsin Mafia and true crime history.